Hi everybody, welcome back to Lighting the Pipes. Thanks very much for joining us here as we discuss The Black Lizard by Edogawa Rampo, written in 1934. And my name is Scott Powell, and as always, I'm joined by my brother in reading, my page-turning partner, Joshua Taylor. Hello, Scott. Hello, everyone. Uh, great to have you here. I'm really excited about this one, buddy. We added it to our reading list. Well, back in October, I picked this one up and uh, sent it along with the with you for Christmas, didn't I? That's right. It was included in a little package with some other goodies and treats. Yeah. Thank Edigawa you, by the way. Rampo, hey, of course, of course. Rampo was a writer I knew very little about. I uh, was quite interested to add to this year's reading some more cultured crime traditions. And this one, coming from Japan in 1934 the edition we're going to be looking at today just to get it out there uh has been translated by ian hughes and was published i think in 2012 or 20 no this edition was published in 2023 yeah 2006 was hughes's translation that's right and this is a reprint it's a penguin reprint uh quite a dark cover with sort of a big jewel on it quite quite striking and quite easy to note it's part of the crime and espionage modern classics line that penguin have out and yeah, I saw it, I read about it, I thought, hey, this is a good one, let's check this one out. But we yeah, should say, I suppose, that it isn't the first uh, story that Rampo wrote with this central detective, is it, Josh? No, uh, his character, Akechi, from what I've read, was at least about 10 novels, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he was first introduced maybe in one of the later short stories that Rampo was writing in the 1920s. But that's yeah. before he moved on to... Uh, a detective character fiction in, in this sense. Before, I think he was just interested in writing about the crimes and how they mm-hmm. were done. He was fascinated mm-hmm. by that aspect of it. And it's interesting because one of his short uh, stories is called The Human Chair, and which that plays <laughs> yeah. a pivotal part in The Black <laughs> sure Lizard. Does. So, yeah. yeah, that was kind of cool. Uh, yeah, so those were your ex- so what were your expectations going in into reading this book? Like w- what did you think you would experience compared to other mystery novels that we've written? Well, this is exactly it. I I didn't have a lot and I was just really interested in, uh, about learning, learning a little bit about not not so much learning about the Japanese culture because I think you can only ever get a you know a, a pinpricks look through into a culture world from a single text. But I was interested in a writer who was so artistically revered, not only within his own culture, but via translation as well. Rampo is a significant crime writer, was, I should say. He died in the late 1960s. But also I was keen to pick this one up, Josh, because of its its pre-war setting. Um, It's pre-war, imperial Japanese setting. I found that really interesting because we're still writing. We're still because we have an author, uh, a Japanese author, who is writing in a kind of a Western style or almost for a Western type audience uh, in 1934 and even before, of course, before the Black Lizard was published. And this is pre World War II. This is before you know Japan joined the Axis powers and whatnot, and all of the nego- the failed diplomacy and negotiations that led to the attack on Pearl Harbor and then the Second World War. And then after that, you of course have the Western occupation of Japan and how their culture kind of their their culture and literature was changed in a way that was influenced by that occupation. So it's just mm-hmm. interesting from in my in my in that historical perspective of reading something that was pre all of that, pre, you know, atomic bomb, pre Pacific War, all of that. You know, yeah. I just I, yeah. I, I, before the fall of the empire, this is when 
Your empire was at was at its I was at its greatest height, and because yeah. 1934 around that time, that's like only a, year, a couple of years after they invaded Manchuria. So mm-hmm. um, they were already as trying to establish that Pacific Empire at this time, and they were still battling diplomacy with the Western powers to see if they can be equal to them in some capacity, you know, and, and that was their main goal. And then we have this guy, a writer, who's writing in a very Western kind of style. So maybe you do see that diplomacy in, in the literature where Japanese culture wanted to become part of the greater world in that sense, or Japan wanted to become the greater world in that sense. But at the same time, you have a story that is built on very Western foundations of mystery writing. And I mean, so the author, um, Edegawa Rampo, he was born uh, Taro Hirai. And that's the thing, is that his name is, is, is kind of a, a, a pseudonym, if you will, uh, a way of a pronunciation of the author that inspired him the most, which, of course, is Edgar Allan Poe. And we can see, I guess, the influences of Dupin in Akechi Kagoro. And like Edegawa Rampo, if you, if you just got to say it really fast, Edegawa Rampo, that is a very mm-hmm. kind of, I mean, it's a, it sounds racist, but that's how a Japanese man would yes, pronounce. I understand e- what you're saying. Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. It's phonetically. The, the sound is there. Yeah. Exactly. Course, it, so, but, you know, being Japanese, Taro Harai can do what he wants there in that respect. So he, a, a little bit of tongue in cheek and gives a kind of look at his character in, in, that, in that sense. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Going into this story, though, um, what I know of Japanese culture from the history that I've been reading recently uh, or, for example, from the Kurosawa that I've seen and the Ozu that I've seen, and as well as anime. I mean, that's one of the biggest influences of Jap- Japan in the Western world these days is manga and anime. Um, you know, I wasn't quite kn- knowing what to expect. I think because I know, for example, like Ozu and particularly Kurosawa were very influenced by no theater because they were very big into like the theatrical expressions and over-exaggerations mm-hmm. of character. And then what you think about yeah. anime in that respect and how some things are over-exaggerated in anime in terms of its character compared to like Western animation and Western films, I would mm-hmm. say that I was ex- I was kind of expecting something a little theatrical, and I was not surprised 100% that we have a third-person narrator that is, in a way, talking to the 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 audience as if you're watching mm-hmm. um, Adam West Batman, in a sense, you know, like <laughs> like 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 literally, yeah. will Akechi Higuro will will Akechi Higuro get out of this one? How will Akechi Higuro get out of this one? Will the Black yeah. Lizard get the the Star of Africa? Find out next uh-huh. time. Same Akechi t- on time. Same Akechi channel. You know, that's, right, that's yeah, kind of yeah. what I felt about the serialization feel of it, and just that fun kind of anime feel that that you know. That's kind of what I was. I wasn't surprised yeah. that I got that in the writing. But it, it, did, it did struck me for a second going, okay, they're going all in. And this feels very Japanese while I was reading it. Mm-hmm. So, And I'm glad, I am glad that you mentioned the serialization of it, because it's important to note at the, uh, at the outset here that while we're reading it in novel form, the text was originally serialized in 1934. So perhaps, perhaps that's where we have these yes. kind of dramatic endings to the chapters, almost soap opera-like. This is probably part of that dramatic presentation. And also, correct. Josh... I also think, uh, to pick up on what you were saying about the dramatic form, I think that a lot of the characterization in this text is dramatic characterization. There's not a lot of expository characterization. So we are unable 
to judge the characters based on descriptions or kind of subtleties in their character writing. Instead, we only see them react and respond to situations and plot things. So we, we don't really get inside a stream of consciousness. We don't get any sort of broken narrative in that capacity. Instead, you just get, here's what we're showing you on stage, judge the character, and carry on. You know, in terms of the yes. Holmes universe, it's not dissimilar to the Mazarin Stone, where you're all, you know, your settings are very restricted, you're judging the characters based on movements and what it is they're doing. I feel like there is a definite stage setup, dramatic presentation to this book that is very unique compared to some of the other texts we've looked at, which are longer-winded in their expository functions, like Wilkie Collins or like Dickens or like Poe. Poe yes. may have inspired this character, but stylistically, Rampo is doing something really different with Akechi, born of his own traditions. Yes, born of his own traditions, but I see Dupin's, I see Poe's Dupin. I, I've confirmed that Rampo was also a was also a fan of Arthur Conan Doyle as well. So you can mm -hmm. see that in his writings. Okay, I'll get into that when I present my fast facts on um, on Rampo. But um, his main influences were Poe, Arthur Conan Doyle, and G.K. Chesterton. Okay. Well, why keep it any longer then? This preamble's done the business it needs to do. Thanks, everybody, for checking us out. As I said before, we got a fantastic year of reading ahead. Uh, we hope you're doing well. And yeah, sit back and enjoy the show. Edegawa Rampo. The author of The Black Lizard is a pseudonym for Taro Harai. Harai was born October 21, 1984, in Nobari, located in Mai, a prefecture in the Kansai region of Honshu, the main island of Japan. His father was of the samurai class who served in the Sioux domain prior to and after the 1868 Meiji Restoration. In addition to being a samurai, which was a diminishing class of old Japan that was gradually being replaced by industrial lobbyists and populists, his father was also a merchant and lawyer. One has to pay the rent when a title formerly known for its prestige and wealth has become purely ceremonial by that time. Now, I don't have anything on Rampo's upbringing based on the resources I had to work with other than in his first few years he moved around the prefecture from Nabari to Kamiyama to Nagoya, uh, Nagoya being the largest city in the Chubu region, which is important because that's the capital city of the Aichi Prefecture in central Honshu, um, an expanding metropolitan region, particularly at the turn of the century. And this places Harai, or, or Edegawa Rampo, as he is later to be known, in a growing cosmopolitan area. So we have someone who is experiencing the urbanized city, all of its good and evil. In 1912, at the age of 17, he is in Tokyo attending Waseda University for economics. He graduated in 1915 and worked odd jobs as anyone would, trying to figure out the rest of their life. He worked for a newspaper where he edited, drew cartoons as well. He also sold soba noodles on the street and worked in a used bookstore. Perhaps in this time, Hurei took on the foundations of the Tokyo underworld he would later write about. Other sources point out that his later writings were influenced by the works of Edgar Allan Poe, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and G.K. Chesterton. So working in a used bookstore tracks, as well as working for a newspaper, given a journalistic background and writing background for Rampo, in addition to his own education in economics. This is someone who understood how a city worked, how the procedures worked. 
Something must have clicked because in 1923, he published his first literary effort, The Two Sen Copper Coin, where he published under his chosen pseudonym, Edegawa Rampo, his own take on Edgar Allan Poe's full name. This story was published in the adolescent-geared magazine Shin Sinan, a publication that previously promoted stories by Western authors such as Poe and Doyle. What's interesting is that it was the first time a Japanese author's story was published in the magazine. His contemporaries in the new Japanese mystery genre that was coming to being uh, were such luminaries as Ruiko, Ruiko Koroiwa, Kido Okamoto, Junichiro Tenazaki, Haru Sato, and Kaita Murayama. Harai, or Edegawa Rampo, stood out from these other authors in how he focused on ratiocination. I know I'm mispronouncing that word wrong, but I just can't remember our Poe talks earlier on, um, which is something you may recall from our readings on Edgar Allan Poe. His Dupin was a precursor to Sherlock Holmes, and of course, ratiocination was also a precursor to Holmes's own science of deduction. Rampa went to publish similar short stories, procedurals, if you will, including The Human Chair in 1925, The Human Chair, which followed The Stalker in the Attic, published earlier that year. The Stalker in the Attic describes how a man kills his neighbor by dropping poison through a hole in the attic floor onto his mouth. So how the crimes are committed and the genius or intelligence put into committing crimes was something that Rampo liked to write about. Now, Given that sequence, I mean, you can't help but think of how a character in the Bond film You Only Live Twice, if you've seen that film, is similarly dispatched, which is a film, by the way, like its source novel, set in Japan. That aside, Edegawa Rampo's first few novels were fostered by his literary influences and focused on the process of sleuthing and procedurals, and this bled through the 1920s into the 1930s, at least for a bit, until he started to veer towards growing movement or popular tradition occurring in Japanese mystery writing called Ero Guru Nansensu, or simply eroticism, grotesqueries, and the nonsensical. These stories in- introduced what was called hentai sayoku, or abnormal sexuality. Now, Edegawa Rampo was best known, of course, for his detective hero, Kogoro Akechi, or Akechi Kogoro, depends upon which way you want to say it. Now, he first appeared in the story, The Case of the Murder on D. Hill, published way back in January 1925, and was a recurring feature from then on, going up against such master criminals as The Fiend with Twenty Faces, who was a master of disguise. And then, of course, you have, in our story here today, the titular Black Lizard, who is now added to that rogues gallery. Akechi was given a sidekick in 1930, a teenager named Kobayashi Yoshio, uh, Post-World War II, Rampo published a series of stories for youth called The Boys Detective Club, which featured Kobayashi, something akin to the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew. Now, speaking of World War II, we do not read of any dissension from Rampo regarding the aggression of Imperial Japan to the Allied powers, despite him being a very influenced Western writer. As far as we know, he was a patriot. Uh, Working in his neighborhood organization, he wrote short stories about Japanese youth solving crimes related to the war effort, but he published these under a series of less-known pseudonyms. It seems like he may, might have been straddling the fence there. Who knows? The only conflict that did occur was when in 1939, the Japanese government ordered him to drop The Caterpillar, which was a short story from his own anthology his current publisher was reprinting at the time. It dealt with a war veteran who was a quadriplegic and provided a visceral portrayal of that experience. 
uh, seen as anti-war. Government censors prevented the reprinting. It wasn't the censorship, really, that rankled Rampo, but the cutting off of his royalties for the story to which he depended. He didn't serve in the military, but he and his family were evacuated from Tokyo to Fukushima, and he remained there until June 1945, where he dealt with his own malnutrition. His neighborhood outside of Tokyo, uh, Ikubukuro, was decimated completely in the Allied air raids on Tokyo, aside for a few structures, uh, maybe a block or two even, but his studio was miraculously spared. In fact, it still stands to this day. Following the Western occupation of Japan after the surrender of the Japanese, uh, Rampo became a hype man for mystery fiction in the post-war period. He helped establish such publications as Jewels, the Detective Authors Club, later named the Mystery Writers of Japan, and he published articles and essays about mystery fiction across the world. Several of his books were adapted into plays and films, and his writings and characters therein later inspired several popular anime. He even helped translate his own work, The Japanese Tales of Mystery and Imagination. Edegawa could not write English. He could read it, though, so he worked with the translator, speaking out loud and then checking each sentence that was written down in English afterwards. It's a good way to do it. Another interesting and ultimately profound post-war project of Rampo's was bringing light to the work of Juichi Iwata, uh, an anthropologist friend who was a Japanese proponent on researching homosexuality. They even competed against each other in a friendly fashion to see who could find the most books connoting homosexuality or the nuances of such within their texts. But Iwata died in 1945 with his work only partially published, leaving Rampo to continue the research and history himself. As mentioned, there is a scarcity of information about his parents, about his siblings, nor do I have any information about his wife or his own family, or whether he was married in the first place. Uh, he died in 1965 after dealing with the combined afflictions of atherosclerosis and Parkinson's, culminated in a cerebral hemorrhage. Uh, he is buried at the Tama Cemetery in Fuchu, outside of Tokyo. Hurai, or Edegawa, Rampo's constant hard work in promoting the mystery genre in Japan and promoting his own version of the genre that is quintessentially Japanese earned him the honorific of having Japan's equivalent to the Edgar Award named after him, the Edegawa Rampo Prize. Not a bad legacy at all. Thanks, Josh, for that. It's always good to get some fast facts on the authors here, particularly one like Rampo, who is um, of a different culture, of a different tradition. Uh, interesting stuff there. And some sadness yeah, in his life, too, I sense, you know. Very yeah. fascinating. Sadness, maybe not the right word, um, but... There's also a lot of... Because of the lack of source I ha sources available on him, there's also an ambiguity to a lot of this information, too, that it makes you yes, want to fill and in it's blanks lost and whatnot. In translation. Yeah. Like, for example, like he seemed very interested in like sexual relationships. I mean, we know Japan mm -hmm. nowadays, you know, that has that repressed mm -hmm. sexuality that comes out in his animation and other and other factors. But at the same time, he him and this other author wanted to compete to write homosexual characters in their writing. So you got to wonder, you know, what was his real, you know, I would like to know more about his personal life and whatnot. And mm -hmm. we don't really have a, a lot about that, that which, which could inform his writing. So yeah, I'm just curious probably. on that basis. For sure. Let's take a closer look now at The Black Lizard itself, the narrative that we are presented. First, serialized in 1934, put together in this copy here for us in 2006 by Ian Hughes. 
So the summary is about 15 minutes long. Get us on the other end if you don't want to hear this. If you do want to hear it, then yeah, sit back, enjoy. Pipes are on the way. <laughs> The metaphorical curtain rises on a Christmas Eve in Ginza, the largest and most affluent part of the imperial city of Tokyo. A private party is going on. Revelers stop to admire and celebrate the entrance of the Dark Angel, a beautiful woman with a black lizard tattoo who enthralls the audience with a naked, erotic dance before disappearing off into the shadows. This woman, known also as Madame Midorikawa, is a master of disguise and powerful head of a criminal network. Obsessed by intricate plotting and the manipulation of others, she conceives of fanciful plots and hatches schemes that will increase her private plunder and boost her bragging rights over enemies. This femme fatale of the Japanese underground and master villainess will soon come to be referred in synonymous terms with the black lizard tattoo brandished on her left arm. Rampo wastes little time in making readers witness to the hatching of Madame Midorikawa's next plot, namely the kidnapping of a beautiful young woman, the daughter of Osaka's leading jewel merchants. The abduction is a means for the Black Lizard to obtain the highest prize imaginable, the largest diamond in Japan. As part of that, she enlists the help of the desperate underling Jun Chan, who requires a cover-up for a ruthless murder. The exchange between the two is short on the page, but significant in helping readers capture a sense of the power which Madame Midorikawa possesses. She promises to help Jun Chan in return for his lifelong obedience. A quick theft of a body from the university's cache of anatomy prospects, followed by a physical transformation of Jun Chan himself, aids in creating enough foundation in belief. The Black Lizard has connections to and power over a great wealth of criminal activity. Before long, Chapter 3 in fact, Jun Chan's new identity, Yamakawa Kensaku, has been revealed and we are next introduced to a few more key players. But what of this jewelry plot? Well, it turns out that the Black Lizard likes to toy around with her victims before striking, like a cat, and has already tipped Iwase Shobei jeweler extraordinaire that his daughter Sanai will be taken from him. To combat this, Iwase not only has her close to him, but also a private detective, THE private detective by reputation, the great Akechi Kogoro. Curiously, Kogoro's reputation enters the story before he does, thanks to previous mentions by the Black Lizard. Madame Midorikawa hates Kogoro with a passion, and while we don't get to learn anything about their history, she would like nothing better than to see an egg on his face. Her interest in this abduction, then, is even more delectable, given that she has a chance to outfox this great detective. The relationship between these two plays back and forth a few times, via the narration or some direct speech, though the novel, but the depth of their relationship is never explored. We're simply meant to understand that Kogoro has built up a barnyard of enemies through his criminal investigations, and none seem to hold a larger appetite for revenge than the Black Lizard. In fact, the two characters meet socially, and before the nefarious plot kicks off, they set a wager. 
If Akechi can get to the bottom of the mysterious threat and solve the mystery, Midorikawa will give up her extensive jewelry collection. And the price to pay if Akechi loses? Why, nothing less than his career. The heist and its fallout are the vertebrate of this thriller, and the first move in this cat-and-mouse double-bluffing game includes a magician's trunk, a fake doll's head, and impersonation of the highest order. The Black Lizard uses the recently reborn Jun Chan and some other baddies to take Sanai from the hotel with her father right from under Akechi's nose during a card game. But not really. You see, Akechi was drying out her hubris the whole time, while his five assistants, known only to himself, were watching the hotel doors and roadside. Safely, they intercepted Jun Chan and returned Sanai to her father. Unfortunately, Jun Chan escaped. Having shown her cards in revealing herself, the Black Lizard makes her getaway by stealing Akechi's gun and locking them all in the room, but not before threatening another attempt soon. This flipped script rattles Akechi greatly. Rampo explains. He had lost. He admitted it. But he could not accept that his defeat was total. It's not long before Iwasi-san and his lovely daughter are back home under enhanced security, and the great detective is measuring up his next move for settling the score and nursing his bruised pride. Rampo then gives us a bridging chapter, in the guise of a narrative non-sequitur, featuring an old man and a recently unemployed young woman on the street. The young woman is impressed that this old man, quote, seemed to know everything about her situation. On the face of it, and for all Rampo discloses, a woman could be entering a sketchy underworld here as the old man speaks money and offers opportunity that we really don't know. But a verbal contract is drawn up between the two, and nothing more is revealed, except that an unknown young woman enters the scene and a doppelganger is close by. Stick a pin in this and wait. This authorial sleight of hand will pay its dividends later on. Meanwhile, Iwasi's daughter sits in her home, guarded. No one can get in or out without being detected. It's a classic locked room. And although Kagoro is still working to protect the family from the Black Lizard, he's out of the house when a new sofa and chairs arrive. These fashionable furnishings are put in place without much ceremony, but the author makes a point of telling us that, quote, the sofa felt so unusual that if Iwase had only sat down next to Sanai, he would have been suspicious. That's right, friends, you guessed it. The black lizard caught wind of a furniture delivery through her sinister surveillance network and had her kidnapper carefully sneak away inside of the sofa to await his opportunity. An emergency phone call is that opportunity, which takes Iwase from his daughter's side, and seizing the moment, the kidnapper pounces. With some help from anesthetic, Sanai is rendered unconscious, and the kidnapper activates phase two. He carefully manipulates Iwase-san's daughter into the sofa and assumes the role of a drunk ruffian who, somehow, as if by magic, apparated into the locked guarded room. He's found lying prostrate and stinking on the sofa. There is a carnivalesque nature to the scene which borders on the Rabelaisian, as the man's acrid, vomitous effluence encourages the house staff to order the soiled, reeking sofa away for cleaning. Yes, 
It's all a bit unbelievable, but that's where we are, and Rampo makes no apologies for asking us to suspend disbelief for a while, as he ferrets Iwase's beautiful, unconscious daughter away in a sofa with barely a question at the vagabond. The drunk man is eventually turned over to three police officers, but his banter is written off by the author as, quote, inconsequential drivel. When Akechi returns, he ponders the Black Lizard's latest trick, and even considers the ingenuity of the task, giving props to his own creator, Edogawa Rampo, by name-dropping an earlier story, The Human Chair. Postmodern self-reflexivity is alive and well in pre-war Japanese crime fiction. The absurd scene soon ends. A letter arrives next for Iwasi, about a day later, instructing him to bring the Star of Egypt to the top of Sutankaku Tower alone. After he hands over the diamond, the safe release of his daughter will be set forth. Iwasi follows the Black Lizard's instructions precisely. However, suspecting Akechi won't be far behind, she switches clothes with a woman and next requests her partner to escort her out of the tower so to avoid detection. What she doesn't know, but we do, is that Akechi got there earlier in preparation. He was that obliging man in disguise, so he had no trouble following her out and pursuing the black lizard. Distrusting her word, Akechi chases the thief through the grim winter dusk and along the canals of Osaka. Using the old rock-in-the-river trick, Akechi confirms his suspicion that the black lizard did indeed jump her cab in favor of a small steamship. Rampo tells us that, quote, from outside she seemed to be an ordinary scruffing freighter, but the drabness of the exterior gave way to an array of luxurious cabins. In one of these rested a sofa, a familiar sofa, and the imprisoned Sanai. Instead of keeping her word to Iwase, Madame Midorikawa plans on keeping Sanai as her prisoner and bringing her to feature permanently in her own macabre museum. So beautiful is Sanai that the black lizard wants to put her on show forever. But what exactly does this mean? We will soon find out, dear listener, but for now, back to the pursuit. The crew of the ship start to report strange, ghostly phenomena, and an atmosphere of fear starts to brew. The Black Lizard hasn't much time for seafaring superstitions, and spends her time talking to Sanai in further cryptic ways about her plans for the future. By this point, Madame Midorikawa has proven herself a sharp, cunning villainess, but the technicolor mania of her sadistic personality is yet to shine. The Black Lizard thinks she solved the matter of these ghost stories and assumes Akechi Kogoro, her old nemesis, has somehow managed to hop aboard. Well, she's not wrong, and before long she's in Sanai's room speaking again with the sofa. Yep, that's right. All assuming fingers point towards Akechi sneaking on board the ship in the couch using her own trick against her. Thinking she's got the jump on him, the black lizard engages in conversation with Akechi, who returns her chat and confirms that, yep, he's in there all right. And then she commands the devoted Jun Chan to throw her furniture overboard. And just like that, Akechi sinks into the depths of the Sea of Japan. 
Arriving, smug, in Tokyo, giddy in celebration over her defeat of Akechi, the black lizard transports Sanai to her underground museum lair, where all variety of horrors lay in wait. Aside from an opulent hallway stretching with glass cases and an art repository's wealth of stolen plunder, there are more fearsome sights as well. Humans skinned and restuffed through taxidermy as statues, others living kept naked as primitive pets, and a giant tank intended for drowning. It's here that Rampo bears his Poe-infused imagination onto readers, while Sanai quakes truly for her limited, marked-out future as Madame Midorikawa's latest doll in this subterranean torture world. But, dear listeners, the Black Lizard is too engulfed in her own pleasure of brutality to notice that Akechi Kagoro had not been dispatched to a watery grave back on the ship. No, no, no. Instead, Akechi put the body of Matsu, the stoker, inside the couch and then hid in that cabin's large closet during the would-be final conversation. The Black Lizard's unraveling happens quickly, as Akechi manipulates her doll-like statues in the corridor to fit his final artistic flair. By tricking her accomplices, Akechi gains closing advantage over the Black Lizard and saves Sanai from her cell, along with another male victim. Costumed as Matsu, Akechi simply traveled to the lair with the retinue and assumed his role. From inside, it was easy to prepare things for the police to gain entry as well, and then stand still behind the glass like statues, fooling everyone until given the signal to strike. And the insulting cherry on the top for the black lizard comes in the revelation that she hadn't even collected the right girl from Iwasu's home. How can that be? I hear you ask. Well, do you remember that awkward bridging chapter where an old man offered work to a young woman? Yeah, you've got it. Sporting an uncanny likeness to Sanai, a beautiful doppelganger was arranged for by Akechi, all in the name of flushing out the Black Lizard's criminal network and hideout. Listening to all of this and seeing the police around her, Madame Midorekawa knows she's finally been outwitted, and for the last time. I mean, there's no coming back from being discovered in your own museum of stolen goods and trafficked human flesh, is there? But... Defiant to the last, the Black Lizard escapes arrest long enough to reach her stateroom and take poison. Akechi follows her, and a tender moment closes the novel, with the great detective holding the dying body of the great villainess in his arms. As a gesture of his respect for her sick genius, he grants her request for a dying kiss, and as Rampo writes, the incredible black lizard, the woman thief of the age who had shaken society to its roots, was gone. The book's final description brings us back to the fiendish lizard tattoo so lustily rendered at the start of the novel. Here, though, it rides with a pain of its own and meets its nefarious master in death. And so ends The Black Lizard by Edogawa Rampo. Well, Scott, another another summary well done. I think you've broken thank down you, all the you. yeah. I think you've broken down all of the set pieces, uh, which is really what this novel is. It's a series of adventurous, mouse trappy <laughs> set pieces, and I think you put yeah. that together quite well. 
all the rug pulling, all the wools over the eyes. I think you um, demonstrated to the listening audience exactly uh, how this book goes down in terms of its structure and its narrative themes. So top Fingers marks on crossed, that. I did. Excellent. <laughs> well, let's move on then, Josh. Lighting our pipes now. This pipes acronym has been our uh, our brethren for a long time. P, our first P stands for perp- uh, principles. We score it out of five. The I stands for investigation, not just the narrative, but how it's written, the style, how it's presented to us on the page, the events, obviously, but also the way the writer pulls it all together. The second P is our perpetrators, our baddies, if you will, the criminals, the villains, the villainesses in this case. E stands for environment, which is the atmospheres of all of the settings, minor and major, that we see in the text, and the S for secondary or supporting characters in our text. Five marks for each of them gives us a total index out of 25, which we use to score and rank our books here on Lighting the Pipes. It's a tried and true formula, but and it, it works. Is. Yeah, it does work. Sometimes we have to put disclaimers in, and I think this might be one of those that, that warrants I agree. A, wee, a wee disclaimer, just because we're not sure how much has been lost, how much nuance has been lost in translation. Um, Penguin have gone with the Ian Hughes translation, which is is good, certainly good, uh, way better than anything I could begin to imagine or approximate myself. But I did feel that there were some moments of kind of jarring, staggering writing. But coming from your fast facts and earlier chat about the dramatic presentation and the interest in that theatrical art of over-exaggeration, maybe there isn't too much lost in translation here. So I'm willing to give Hughes and the translating team at Penguin uh, the benefit of the doubt, certainly. Who am I to take on that great brand? But Mm. as a reader, there are some moments that have me scratching my head as the story is told to me. (laughs) Agreed. Uh, We'll go into those nuances as we uh, smoke our pipes. All right, buddy. Well, let's start with P, principles. Talk to me about how you found Akechi Kogoro in this, not his first, uh, but probably his most celebrated adventure. So outside of what I've seen from the Japanese cinema that I've seen, and, and really the Japanese literature that I've seen is mostly Japanese cinema. I've seen a little bit of Ozu. I've seen a good bit of Kurosawa. So I got an idea about what the male Japanese protagonist is like, what their what their hero characters are like. But even more so, um, anime has definitely informed that in, in me. And I think Akechi uh, Kagoro, uh, you could take his character and put him in anime easily. Like the male anime protagonist, mm-hmm. they're always mm-hmm. this brilliant mastermind. Uh, they're always vaguely handsome, vaguely witty, mm-hmm. and they only slip up because of plot reasons and they bounce back immediately. And I haven't read anything pre-war from Japan. So that's the vibe that I'm getting here, right? Uh, right. Besides right. this besides this book. And so that's the yeah. vibe that I'm getting here. This is what I've been seeing is like, we're getting these, a very thinly sketched out protagonist. He's mm-hmm. fun, you know, and I, and I can tell that character is not a motivation for Rampo's storytelling here. Um, I, I admire the persistence of Akechi, you know, him being one step ahead of the Black Lizard. That's really fun. I enjoy that on a basic level. Um, I would like to see some ambivalence towards the case, like in his own mind, maybe even feelings towards the Black Lizard that she clearly reciprocates according to uh, Rampo's... Uh, st- mm, interesting, yeah. 
I would like to have seen some of that as well. But overall, like, I wasn't overly wowed with him as a protagonist. I wanted a little more. And that kind of made me just give him a passing mark. So I don't know. What were your feelings on Akechi Kagoro? Was he more dynamic than I'm letting on? Or did you find him very bland, even more so than myself? I'm there with you. And I think part of this has to do with the fact that he is a pre-existing character when we meet him. Mm, that's a good point. Not not just in the 1920s with the origin story, the short story, and not just because... Good point. You know, he, he's been in the cultural milieu there for a while. We kind of jumped right in, in, in a yeah, sense. Yeah, we do, uh, absolutely. Of his, like, of his greater story, for sure. Yes, but Akechi in this book, which is all we can judge him by, I think arrives on the scene fully formed as if he's appeared before, which of course is true. Uh, yes. But there's little to no characterization because the narrative style tells us about the reputation of the man and they live up to it, or he lives up to it rather. Although I guess yeah. by extension, you, you could say the same about about the Black Lizard herself because she she also has a reputation that's introduced and then she lives up to it. And yeah. the, the, the cunning of the principal character, if we're to compare him to Dupin or some of these other antecedents, you know, like the Holmes or whatever, um, the cunning of this character, it's fun to follow, but we learn, well, I felt anyway, that I learned almost nothing about him as a man or as a unique person. Like, we don't really know what makes him tick, what motivates him. We know about his reputation and we judge him but we can only judge him according to what he does like A to B to C. Like he does yes. have moments of cool. He, he, he has some moments of coolness though, where like he doesn't, he doesn't join Iwasi when he gets really worked up about something. And obviously he's clever and he's shrewd, but there's no exposition behind or surrounding him. Uh, and I like to have some of that from a detective. Do you know what I mean? Like there's no working it out talk. There's no reflection really. The narrative just takes us, in a place where we don't get any of that fabric that helps us get inside the character's mind. It's like, here's the next scene, and here's the next scene. Oh, reveal what he did. And here's the next scene, and here's the next scene. Reveal what he did. Like, we're forever guessing. We're never really getting to know him, walking with him. And that approach to writing, in my opinion, really hurts the character side of things, because like it doesn't it doesn't allow you to it only ever allows you to do what you do when you're watching a magician which is ah right and you give a little applause like well done you got me you never yes. you never get to meet the character or sympathize with the character because you don't know the fucking character some people might love that because it heightens the whole play along thing but for a character like a catchy who is of and you know he he's of a of a tradition, but of uh, of a literary reputation, he should transcend some personal traits like Holmes does. You can pick up any Sherlock Holmes story, even the bad ones, and you still have some expository writing in the Western tradition. Uh, fair enough, in the Western tradition, expository writing that helps you get to know him a bit, a little bit of laughter, a little bit of humor. There is nothing in here that we get about a catchy. So yeah, he, even, he has it, like his ha 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 moments sometimes, but that, well, yeah, but not it, really. Like even if I extend an olive branch to to this translation thing we've talked about, and to the potential of them wanting to be, or uh, Rampo wanting to be like exaggerated in his in his actions or whatever, I don't get anything like um, 
But I just don't get to know the guy. I just don't get to know the guy. And he doesn't I, need to be presented as a Western character for me to get to no, know him. I don't think. I don't think so. Now, what I'm, one thing I was reading about in... Uh, what I've been reading recently about the history of Japan, in particular during like the pre-war period, the emphasis on propaganda began to build and build and build from like the late 20s and onwards. And there was a whole idea about a nationalism and an indi- and how like the individual was, it almost sounds like communism in a way, because the individual needs to be part of a greater purpose, or, or, you know, towards mm-hmm. the Japanese nation. And so maybe they're giving less personal features to these characters so that maybe, you know, the reader can, uh, I suppose, project their own their own beliefs or their own character traits onto a catchy so they can so they find so that makes him more uh di- i guess uh digestible to the reading audience at the, at the time and maybe mm-hmm. that's the reason why, but again these are arbitrary reasons outside of the narrative outside of the writing right yeah but yeah. i'm just trying to find some explanation beyond our usual you know just just a translation situation or this is different from western characterization and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One thing I will say about anime is that even though their characters can be eccentric and whatnot, they're still like, you, you get, I mean, anime is all about people jumping into someone's mind and having voiceover narration talking about what they're going to do and how they're going to do things. So that's clearly changed since this time period where we're not getting an internal, the internal thoughts of the character here. We're just getting them reacting to things as as you were saying. So again, we don't really have much to rate on here in uh, regarding Akechi Kagoro. Unfortunately, we don't have much to, to dig into. So that's mm-hmm. why I, I gave it a passing grade. So I was pretty much two and a half out of ten. Uh, sorry, two and a half mm-hmm. out of five on. Um, <laughs> yeah, on our boy. Red- uh, redo your maths there. <laughs> yeah, uh, that would be that would not be a passing grade. Um, <clears throat> I choked in my water there. Um, yeah, so that's why I gave a passing grade of two and a half out of five to yeah, our well, boy Ketchy. I was just behind you. I went for a two. And yeah, I haven't failed character writing in a long time. But um, I, I certainly hope that those listening who are big fans of Akechi see where I'm coming from here. In this particular book, I don't get to know this character at all. And that upsets me a bit as a reader. Uh, I, I don't want to just... Uh, the only thing I can judge him by are the stereotypes and reputation that I'm told about on page two mm-hmm. or on like the first five minutes of a, of a pre-title scene. I want to get into the character's mind. All I ever get to know about Akechi through this book is what I'm told at the beginning, which lives up to be true. He's clever. He'll get you. Watch out. Don't Don't count him out. If you think he's done, he's not done. And he's not done. Maybe the first 10 books that he's in or the first 10 years of the character's life, rather, maybe that fills in all the stuff I'm looking for, and this is just a coming out party. This is just a bit of fun. In which case, apologies to the um, to the readership that, that knows him much, much better than I do. I think most general readers who are picking up this edition of the book, if they don't fail Akechi on the character writing, they will at least be wanting more. And I was disappointed. Was it was one of yeah. it was one of the bits that I it's, well, it's the only bit that I failed in my scoring, and I'm sticking to the two out of five because I, th- I think I think you should be able to pick up any book that a great detective is part of and know why he's a great detective. I don't know why here. I don't know. All I see is he's doing David Copperfield things, and that's not enough for me. Mm-hmm. That's not enough for me. That's not enough. No, 
Absolutely. So let's go on to investigation, see if this changes things, Josh. I didn't fail this, Mark, but I'll give you first crack at it. Okay. Well, I enjoy the cat and mouse game. There's no denying that. Uh, we talked about, you know, I think through a catchy, we're going into the magician aspect of things. So we talk, we're, we're going to talk about, you know, the, the plot contrivances to that are engineered to wow the reading audience as they go along, you know? I feel that this mm-hmm. book is supposed to be more of like, or maybe these books in general are supposed to be more of like an entertaining experience, uh, more so than any kind of deep, profound look at culture. And given the time when it was written, just a basic kind of story is probably what the reading audience was looking for, something very yep. uniform yep. in terms of tropes and, and what it's based from. Serialized something that's very well. Serialized, exactly. Something that they'd be Pulpy. very familiar yep. with, mm-hmm. that they don't need to think too much about. Well, at the same time, employing things in the writing that were probably very key to that period. And that I would have to point in is the writing of the female characters. Now, this can maybe bleed into the perpetrators part of our ratings a little bit, but I found that, so the, the presentation of women was very traditional Japanese in, in my from what I've read about the culture and learned about the culture. And if I'm making any kind of over o- overreaching statements, I, I do apologize. I'm just going by what I know and what I've experienced about, about that. And I don't want to use the word misogyny, but male culture has, uh, Japanese culture has always been male dominated more so than mm-hmm. anything. Um, and if you notice, like any kind of normal portrayal of a Japanese woman in this book, you get uh, Misawasi just for a little bit in the story, and she has really no impact. And she's no, not even really yeah. shown weeping over the, this, the abduction of her daughter. She's just kind of just like sad or something. That's the way I would describe it. Um, mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. she's she's just she doesn't she's scared to show those emotions. She's just scared to be, you know, anything beyond servile in that situation. You know, she's supporting her husband who's being strong, and she doesn't want to give in to those kind of emotions. She would keep them separate from herself. So that's a whole game she's playing in in that in that historical social reality. And then we have the black lizard, who is an independent woman, sexually independent on top of that, and she's a criminal, and she's devious, and she's scheming. And it gets a kind of the presentation of the kind of women that that she's trying to be and what young Japanese women should not aspire to. So you're getting that in terms of the writing as well. And then we have, for example, the decoy, Sakuyama Yoko. Uh, she she's only appears for a brief moment. And of course, well, she's actually, she's, she's there throughout the last third of the novel. But at the same time, she does come from a debased background. She was a prostitute. And... Mm-hmm. And that's why, and and then you have a pure virginal figure like Sane, who is essentially, you know, the damsel in distress. So you have very coded uh, patriarchal portrayals of women uh, in this novel. And that was definitely in the writing. And I felt this is one of the, this is one of the things I think that made it very probably popular and the terms of the, and what the Japanese reading audience would pick up are these are the kind of traditions and, and concepts that Japanese men and women should aspire to, uh, particularly like brave, witty, and uh, persistent figures like a Kechi. And, you know, and then when you have people who are skeptical of that, like a jeweler, for ex- a rich jeweler, for example, who are skeptical of that kind of brilliance and tenacity, uh, are, are, are made to kind of look like fools in the end, you know, like, like the reader is. So, 
you should always be prepared for people to be as brilliant and 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 and, and as amazing as possible. And I, I, that's the kind of the feeling that I got from the writings from a writing stock from a I guess a propaganda kind of a propagandist aspect I got from the writing. Maybe I'm digging too deep into it, but it makes sense mm-hmm. to me and how and and how things were portrayed to me. So beyond those thematics, uh, in terms of like the plot contrivances, I thought, for example, the Osaka Tower scene was brilliant. I d- that was, I think, my favorite whole setup was the Osaka Tower scene because it seemed the most probable, and it worked to me as an audi- as a reader on how it ca- how it carried out. I loved that the fact mm-hmm. that it was a catchy, you know. But then there was just too many times like you're watching like one of the lesser Mission Impossible movies where every scene someone takes off a mask. And then it reveals that it was them the whole time. You know what I mean? And yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I I love the Mission Impossible movies, uh, but there was one in particular where that just happened so many times, and I was just sort of like, "This is why this one is not one of the great ones." You know, it's 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 over it's it's overreaching with these like contrivances sometimes. And don't get me. And I well, I do like that whole one I, that gut punch or that really threw me was Sakura Yamayoko was obviously set up for some reason in that one chapter. And then she comes back into play. I still didn't expect that to be Sane on the ship or in the warehouse under the warehouse or wherever it was on the Island that they went to in the end. So I was, I was that, that did, that did throw me. I, and like, and how I do like how those contrivances are set up and then how the writer kind of writes himself out of it in his own way. So this all goes into the whimsical, nonsensical aspect of things. And in my and in, as I as you got from my fast facts, is that Rampo was writing, particularly in the 1930s, while he was working on a few of these Akechi Kagoro books, was that he was writing about he was digging into a writing style that was very nonsensical. Uh, wanted to push things like weird sex and weird just weird things in general to kind of make things seem just to, things making a bit more surreal. And there's kind of this adventurous whimsy to it, and this this I think is what he was doing here at this at this time in his writing career. So, uh, hmm. so it's, and and that makes total sense given what I read. So, overall, like we're going from set piece to set piece in in this story. Um, there's no real control of the narrative. We're never on the sense where like we're with the with the main character. We don't have a protagonist to follow. We're just there to kind of marvel at all of the c- clever, you know. Slight, slight of hand that the writer is presenting in the story. So that inter- entertains me, but it, 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 it leaves me very little satisfied by the end of it. You know, I just kind of felt like while I enjoyed it for its whimsy, you know, I'll use the word whimsy again, but that's kind of what it really is. Um, while I enjoyed it, I wasn't like overly immersed into it and I wasn't, I, I was very detached from the whole thing while I was reading it. I was, I could see the tropes. I could see what the nuances that they're trying to portray about the culture at the time that I picked up anyway, but I wasn't really able to dive deep into the story. And I was just kind of felt like it just seemed like it was just going back and forth, back and forth, like a, like, like a ping pong game. And it just got to a point where I just like, didn't care. Uh, yeah, I still enjoyed it. You know, it was, it was kind of like just mm-hmm. an ephemeral experience for me in that sense. So I did enjoy it. I did enjoy some of the Catamos games. I like some of the setups for sure. And I understand too, we're, we're dealing with a translated text. So there's going to be stuff missing. So I'm going to give this a generous three out of five in terms of the narrative. Okay. Well, I went for three and a half out of five for okay. the investigation for the narrative and um, for similar reasons, Josh, similar reasons. But I, I do think that even for a translated text, there's still real effort here 
in places to promote a nice sense of pace, a good sense of environment. I'll read a few moments where I think uh, Rampo is, is trying hard to, and Hughes, I guess by extension, is trying hard in his translation to capture the essence of the moment. And some of that... That's got to be the struggle, eh? Is when you're yeah, doing the translation, can you capture the, the suspense yeah. or the tension that the mm-hmm. original mm-hmm. author pro- provided to his readers back then and pro- trying to provide it to a modern audience? How do you yeah. do that? And uh, that's well, a quite a task. So you have to think about that too, I guess. One of the ways that I think he manages to do that is in the early stages of the book, where we have the Jun Chan and the um, Midorikawa scenes, where she's mm-hmm. exerting herself as the authority figure, the sexual, lusted after figure that Jun Chan is sweating when he's watching her undress and, and, you know, get into the box and demonstrate how they're going to do the kidnapping and all of that sort of stuff. Like, I really like those scenes because I felt in them an effort uh, by both writers the original and the translator to communicate um, a fever pitch kind of and and that's an awkward expression I know but the character of Jun Chan particularly I think is well written in the early stages of the book he helps do some of the only characterization in the story which is a characterization of um, of the black lizard and not surprisingly my mark for her is up <laughs> from where it was on a catchy because yeah. you get a little bit of characterization from her i we think do. she's a fascinating figure not to step too quickly into the next category but i think the investigation deserves a little bit of credit for the way because we do score style here as well for the way that the style tries to present her as a, a progressive nefarious dangerous type of figure and if as we understand from tropes and from the histories the male dominant society is prevalent here she stands out as an even more intriguing figure and how she has built her network out of people like jin chan people who needed favors and she fixes them for the for them in return for obedience and lifelong dedication and work and whatnot like that i mean the the story is unique that that is absolutely for sure but i'm not i'm not so sure how much of its subtlety is lost to us by reading it in english you know um because i don't know very much about how the japanese lexicon works its iconography works i don't know how the syntax of grammar works so i can't begin to imagine how that would be translated i know from that that in itself is very dependent upon um upon language forms and iconography communicating ideas within context and i think the context of the images in the language is something that is is very challenging to translate into English. So although I took Hughes to task earlier um, and saying, yeah, like maybe we don't get enough of a catchy here and I certainly don't get enough of him. Maybe he's done the absolute best he can with what was written here by Rampo, mm. you know? Anyway, um, I'm getting, I'm, I'm going down a bit of a rabbit hole here. Uh, yeah, investigation, the, the actual investigation, it is a cat and mouse game, absolutely. I, I did like the scene at the hotel at the start, though, with the doll's head and the magician's trunk. I think I liked that more than, more than, well, <laughs> I don't know, I liked it more than the stuffed sofa. But I felt like in that situation, Akechi was not in control, and she, 
Madame Midorikawa was was showing all of her cards there as they're literally playing cards, which I thought was kind of ironic. But like mm-hmm. so much, so much of the charm and the reveal happens off the page here. Like we don't get an idea of what anybody actually goes through. I guess the exception to that is 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 with the magician's trunk at the beginning. I'd like to just read this section out where I think the writer gets it. Uh, a nice sense of that kind of powerful female protagonist. So the dialogue is, yeah, ha ha ha, indeed it is, here and there. The trunk has little ventilation holes that cannot be seen from outside, so there's no need to worry about suffocation if the lid is closed. That's um, the black lizard explaining how they're going to take Sanai. I'm, I'm on page 23, by the way. But then we get this paragraph, which, which really is a nice, um, if lusty description no sooner had she said this than she slammed the lid shut sending up into the excited young man's face a billow of warm air filled with the scent of her body once the lid had been closed all that could be seen was a plain black rectangular trunk no one would have imagined that hidden inside was a mound of sexy amply rounded peach-colored flesh This stark contrast explains why, from ancient times, conjurers have used an unattractive trunk and a beautiful woman's body. What do you think? No one would suspect that a person might be inside. Having slightly opened the trunk's lid, she sought his agreement with a simple, or with a smile, looking very much like Venus appearing from within the shell. (laughs) I think there's an effort there, isn't there? There is an effort there to do something stylish. Yes, I, 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 yeah, he's, I can see him being constrained, you know, in what he's writing because of the audience that he's writing for. You can see more of the introspective, uh, Rampo in those little, in those little moments, in those passages, you know? Yeah. The, yeah. the author is trying to branch out as stylistically as he possibly can, given the constraints of, you know, of, of the writing. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what else can I say here? The scene with the sofa. <laughs> that was clever, okay, but it was clearly derivative and it, completely bonkers. The things that <laughs> the the thing I found most surreal about that, uh, which took me out of the procedural altogether, was like, why does nobody challenge or ask the drunkard what he's done with Sanai? Like they all seem content with waiting for the cops to show up, and they they're like, oh, she's disappeared, and oh, she's got us. The black lizard's got us. But the guy who could potentially answer some of their questions is just written off as speaking dribble. And yeah, yeah, like I felt that really weird. I, 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 that bothered me more than the breaking of the fourth wall, like the, the, the Batman moments you mentioned earlier. I, yeah. I got used to that idea and that presentation quite quickly. But why they didn't challenge that guy with the sofa, they just sort of accepted that the drunkard could get into a locked room and it, that was that was weird, but yeah, the the top of the towers was great with the red flags and all of that from you know the opposing rooftops. I thought that was really cool, and the fact that Akechi had read it earlier and, and he was a guy in disguise. I liked yeah. that. I liked the revelation. I don't mind some of these surprise aha moments. In fact, I think they play quite nicely. But I would just like to see a little bit more expository writing between the actions so that we get to generate some thought for ourselves, you know? 
I feel that. Um, I feel that. The introduction of Jun Chan, which I already mentioned, I think, uh, and the first abduction are, are great. I really do like them. The canal chase is fun. And the way that Akechi gets the taxi driver to kind of flash his lights and th- he throws the rock into the water. It feels like the, the sign of four a bit too. Eh? It, it does. Yeah. It does kind of feel like that. You can, you can feel the, the Conan Doyle influence there chasing Tonga down the river. Um, Not to mention the disguises as well. Oh, of course. Yeah. The Museum of Terror. Um, let's just talk about that briefly before we leave investigation. Or, or do you want to talk about it in environment? <laughs> I, I think we can think about the way. environs. Yeah. Okay. But it's it's a pretty cool denouement, even though it is one of the more heavier handed moments of gotcha. And then let me tell you yes. how I gotcha. And we play it back in an info drop. Um, <laughs> I, I did still like it. And I really was surprised that Sanai was not Sanai. And the bridging chapter, that awkward, weird sort of narrative non sequitur that I mentioned in my summary, that comes back into full play when we realize that she had never kidnapped Sanai the second time. She had the other woman. And that was quite clever. So well done, Akechi. Like, his cleverness is there on the page. I just wish I had some of the character writing that would make, would give me a chance to, to, to go so much higher. So... Like, yeah, if it way, exists like, in the previous stories, I guess, yeah. then we'll have to like, check some of those out. If he, there was a, mo- I'm sure, I've, I've read that there has been, of course, you know, modern adaptations of these of these stories and whatnot. I just feel that, like, if I just knew what kind of person Akechi was, like, for example, like, if Akechi was, like, a womanizer, or if he was, like, maybe had an addiction of some kind, or he was just an asshole, like, I would, I think I would enjoy uh-huh. his character a lot more beyond mm-hmm. his brilliance, mm-hmm. you know, like, I like to see his flaws and his frailties, and that would make me appreciate what he can pull out of his hat, so to speak, exactly. as the, the exactly. magician that he's supposed yeah. to, that he is being portrayed as here, so that I can, you know, be hyped up about it, you know, instead yeah. we have Kogoro, sorry, sorry, instead we have Rampo being the hype man for his characters, um, yeah. in his writing, so. Totally, yeah. man. Okay, well, I, I went for three and a half, and okay. I feel like I feel like it's an interesting story, and it is. It moves from set piece to set piece. If you don't like that, you might not like this. If you do want a lot of character writing, really rich in descriptive moments, you, you're probably not going to get it in this translation, but it is fun because the things that have happened, the plotting, like to imagine Rampo sitting down and mapping this all out, there's real skill there and there's real creativity there and even if he's using derivative forms from you know the 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 chair story he wrote before (laughs) which the character self-reflectively mentions very postmodern that moment for the 1930s you know like uh oh right uh readers might remember a cure like the guy mentions the character mentions in scene the the story that rampo wrote before which is quite clever you mature yeah <laughs> yeah it's quite interesting i just think that if you're if you're aiming for Self-work. real rich character writing and rich action like with motivations all revealed and stuff you're not gonna like it but I, I was happy enough with this one. Three and a half is certainly not the lowest mark I've ever scored an investigation on this show. But, yeah. On to perpetrators, man. Do you want me to go first? Yeah, you, yeah, you can start this. You can start at the perpetrators, and I'll uh, g- g- right. give you my take. Well, I'm I'm going to keep perpetrators pretty pretty short here. Um, I've already said that I think she's better written. The Black Lizard is better written here than Akechi is. We learn more yes. about her, even though we don't learn tons, and we don't get to know where the genesis of their relationship as kind of uh, protagonist antagonist began. We don't we don't get that, 
But we do get enough of her, I think at least, at the start of the story, exercising her power, showing her and flexing that muscle of criminal um, criminal strength. Like we know she's got connections in the university for stealing the the bodies. We know she's capable of covering up crime and doing it with creative intellect. We know she's resourceful. She can jump cabs and get drivers and she can kill and she can, you know, fake with heads and masks. And then at the end, we get her absolute crazy mania. She is an interesting figure. I think she's more like a Bond villain than, you know, a bot, some of the Bond villains we get, if you know what I mean, like in the yeah. Fleming's early kind of hammed up presentation but given it's 1934 given the male uh dominant society given the patriarchy given a lot of factors i think and also given the way akechi respects her at the end of the story i think we're meant to and in i think we're also built up to so i think there's enough behind it to respect her a wee bit and although she's sick she's sick She's more defined than Akechi, and I found her really interesting. First, as a sexual figure that just pops right off the page in a, okay, let's call it what it is, a very traditional male gaze sort of scene. But that sexuality clearly is part of her influence over people like Jun Chan and other men, other underlings, as she calls them, who work for her. She can control with her body and with her sexuality. She can open and close doors quite easily. She can make things happen. She is progressive at a time, I think, where, I mean, for can you imagine a character like this being written in, yeah, you can, in a pulpy story, perhaps, in, you know, the, the black mask or something like that but the femme fatale the femme fatale but she's she's got something above a lot of other femme fatales like she's got more than yeah because there's a master criminal mind and a and a mania behind it. it's not all impulsive it's not all lustful there's a strategy to her and there's a mm. there, there's also a vengeance to her which i think does make her pretty interesting i'd like to see this character somewhere else because she's at the the top of some criminal underworld that it's pretty it's pretty colorful man so as a fictional character i was generous here i went with a four okay i was three and a half uh out of five for uh the black lizard but i had the same sentiments that you did i just found that four is pretty close to five and i just wasn't able to give the full marks for it because i wanted more of her as a character i wanted more of her background and and who she was we're given hints about it and I think, again, I'm going back to, to, the, to the writing style here, but even though like she is a progressive figure in a sense, I still feel at the time, this is they're kind of doing the whole Madonna-whore tri- you know, di- dichotomy here with Sinai versus the Black Lizard. Like They're making her progressive, and they do make you feel sorry for her in the end, and they kind of even give her a bit of brain fever, like, oh, she... The whole thing about her, like, in love with him, was to me, was kind of just, like, bowing to the male protagonist figure by the end of it. Like, th- that kind of, to me, like, kind of, def- it kind of, I was just, I was disappointed in that. I wish she just was, the one it, she was just so independent and, and desperate for her independence that she would take her own life, and that would mm. be it. You know, like, I just didn't like the idea of her, 
I didn't like the idea of, of her wanting to be kissed or whatever by well, a catchy. Well, that's cool. Like, shall we read that little bit? Because I see that a bit differently. I'd be really keen to get your interpretation of that. Of, I'm not of, against of that it. Ending. I think it yeah, works no, in the no, storytelling. No. I'm more talking about thematically being presented as a as the progressive character at this time period when it was written, and how it would have been how and how it's. I think it's trying to play off, but it's actually a little more ambiguous than that, and that's why why you're seeing this more in in that respect, right? So, mm-hmm. but yeah. Yeah, sh- share your passage and uh, let's 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 dig into it. Well, it's it's just the end here where she asks him for a kiss, and I I, I can sense I guess that this does play into the the male dominance to the patriarchy again, but at the same time he grants it. Like if he was more powerful, he could put her down. Uh, ultimately, she gets what she wants, and I, I just wonder if there if there isn't something here. Let, let's just read it and see. Goodbye, Akechi. Can you grant me a dying wish? Kiss me? Her limbs were already shaking. This was the end. And though she may have been a criminal, he could not refuse her this last dying request. Silent, Akechi Kogoro softly pressed his lips to her already cold brow. He kissed the forehead of the murderess who had tried to kill him. She smiled with happiness from the heart, and with that smile on her face, she stopped moving. The detectives finished with their arrests, came charging up the corridor, and stood transfixed in the doorway when they saw that strange scene. Even these detectives, known as cold-hearted men, had emotions. Stricken to silence by the solemnity they faced, they lost, for a moment, even the power of speech. The incredible black lizard, the woman thief of the age who had shaken society to its roots, was gone. Mm -hmm. She had passed from this world with a faint smile on her face, lying with her head pillowed on the knees of the famous detective, Akechi Kogoro. Yeah, there's a bit of ambivalence in terms of the writing there, if you think about it, because while this is a progressive figure, an independent figure, and you get the sense that he's trying to kind of do, you know, he's he's trying to show that this is this is a lifestyle that Japanese women should not partake in. At the same time, you have Akechi, you could say that, like, I don't think it was a romantic thing of him kissing her. It was more about that was her own wish. Maybe she had her own yeah. desires for a catchy, and that's perfectly fine. That's perfectly fine. She's allowed to have that, absolutely. But there's almost this gives like an act of almost nobility or charity that Akeshi is giving to this woman, mm. you, you know, mm-hmm. this fallen woman of society. So you can read it either way, but it's very clever that you know uh, Rampo is giving you the, the the choice of that. So people who are yeah, more inclined yeah. politically or so, or socially, you know, whether they feel on the on the side of you know, pro, pro, uh, pro, progressivism, it feels like, you know, they're given a choice to what to interpret here. If you catch my drift, mm-hmm. yeah, I do, I do. Okay, well, either way, three and a half and a four. I guess what we're saying here to listeners is that there's enough meat in here to be interested, whether whether you you know you give a lot of credit or not. This is an interesting character at an interesting yes. time, and we don't need to find a Western equivalent in the pages, the pulpy pages of the Black Mask. We don't need to. This is its own thing, and it's an interesting thing. I like it. I liked it, and I thought she was one of the high points of the story. Absolutely. Um, so let's go on then to environment, my friend. Yeah, the environs, how, you know, the atmosphere of the story and locales and how they tell this and how they shape the story and set the stage for all the events that occur. 
yeah, I do like the I do like the choice of the locales. Uh, one thing I got tied up on is they kept referring to the Imperial City in the first chapter, and that mm-hmm. is, that is actually Tokyo. And I, for, right. for a yeah. moment, because of what I've been reading about Japanese history, I know that like the capital of Japan, the traditional cultural capital of Japan, the Imperial cult- capital of Japan, is Kyoto. But Tokyo, the word Tokyo actually means the Western capital, and because it used to be called Edo, um, that was the name of it, but. Tokyo became a name because it was known as the Western capital. Um, so just that's a bit of interesting thing about it is that the Imperial City is in fact Tokyo. And that just goes to show, you know, how big Japan was as a culture at the time in terms of, you know, standing aside the Western powers is that one of their biggest, most progressive commercial ports is in fact the real true capital, even the Imperial capital of Japan. And what we got from it in the story is the sort of the the red light district of of that's right yeah yeah of tokyo we're not seeing like you know the big government offices or we're not seeing you know like the shibuya we're not seeing yokohama harbor to any capacity we're we're seeing like the underworld of tokyo and that was kind of interesting for me this party that that the the nobility the nobility that the nobility has going down into the low levels so to speak and uh Mm-hmm. And and then you have the, like this woman, the black lizard, is entertaining them sexually, right? During during, during this right. whole yeah. Yeah. progress that's going on, where these elites are going down and uh, partying with like you know with prostitutes and whatnot. And she and she was and so it just goes to show how from the bottom up, you know, even the top go comes down to the very comes down to the bottom and debases itself. And and but that's where she gets all her power from. Is where she gets all of her. Uh, dominant energy in the story is from that. So mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. the portrayal of, uh, even though it was vague, of the underworld of Tokyo in the first couple of chapters was really cool. Um, I also liked the portrayal of Asaka. I liked how, just how the, he went into detail about, you know, the architecture. He went into detail about the tower and what you could see from the tower and just the, the whole vistas that he was able to incorporate was really good. Um, and then, of course, you have the the freighter, what I guess it was a steamer, yeah. Sorry, the, the steamer and the island. Like there was really interesting locales in this story that were they were very atypical for like a Japanese story. Like they were very sort of pulpy detective locales, and I kind of liked that. I kind of liked how we're digging into the more cr- criminal aspect of Japan as opposed to like its normal cultural tropes that you that that they, that, that they would portray. Like you know like. There wasn't really a lot of... They talked about fashion in terms of, like, kimonos and, and whatnot. Yeah, they talked yeah. about the different types of fashion. And, and you could pick up on those things for sure. But you got a very modern feel um, for mm-hmm. these locations. And I think uh, Kagoro did a good job showing... He did a really good job portraying that to us in his writing. Rampo, you mean. Mm. Yeah, sorry. Rampo, yeah. Kagoro is his character. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Easy or mistake same. Who's, who's Who is it, right? <laughs> um, but overall, I think the environment... I think they weren't overly descriptive, but I think they worked really good for the narrative. So my my review for the environs is three and a half out of five. Okay, well, I was a half a half above you here as well. I went for oh. a four. Okay. Uh, again, like I I think because yeah, sorry, I won't go there. I went for a four. I thought exactly as you did. Um, I guess maybe I. It just appreciated a little bit more that canal chase, a little bit more the um, the details of the hotel room and the locked door, and I liked the way that, and maybe it was, in in 
credit to Ian Hughes' translation. Maybe I got myself lulled into the rhythm of the story, and the bits that stuck out were really pronounced in that theatrical way, so I did like it. Like, you know, the the underground museum of horrors, or Ooh, yeah, whatever that, she calls it, like, that, that was yes. really really cool it was underdeveloped there's absolutely no question that it was underdeveloped like that whole scene with the fish tank where she kind of sees herself in it and has like a pass out faint um that that whole thing was underdeveloped because outside of drowning people in the massive fish tank i can't really see what it's for it doesn't really make much sense to me but it's just another facet of this of this dark chaos, right? That she's trying to bring into her victims and things like that. Like this murderous intent, this torturous realm of, of um, what next for the people who are imprisoned there. But there was so much of the Poe flavor to that aspect of the story. Yeah. That call. I felt, I felt like, okay, this is where Rampo is really channeling his, is is Yoda master? Here's <laughs> Jedi master. You know, like, and I didn't think I didn't think he was being derivative. He wasn't burying people behind walls, like in a um, cask of Amantuado. He wasn't. Um, he wasn't. You know, although there was that reference to the ticking heartbeat, which made me think of the Telltale Heart. Right? Yeah, we did. Both, we right? didn't. Th- there were some real flavors here that didn't feel too uh, ham-fisted, and I thought. I'm getting, like you said, a real flavor of this criminal underworld, these atypical places. And I, I felt that was refreshing in a book that's rather thin um, and absolutely thin on character drawing. It was a really refreshing part, I thought, that was done well to have an environment rendered vividly enough that I was transported there in places. So, yeah, I went for a four. A three and a half is a strong mark as well, but I, I went for a four. So you had this book read before I did. So, and I only finished it quite recently. So maybe I'm just going with my fresh thoughts and I haven't really allowed them to ruminate in terms of my, of, of my markings, you know, like sometimes it takes a couple of days for a book to settle into you. And, and then when you get to a chance to then go feel your thoughts about it, they might be very different from what you originally reacted from. So I'm going more from a reactionary standpoint in my reviews. So, so maybe that's why maybe I'm a little more analytical towards it because I know that I had to go do a podcast the next day. So I had to go and, you know, okay, I better go review this, you know, and get my marks down mm-hmm, so I can talk mm-hmm, about it. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to go over analytical maybe. So I, yeah. I think there's a possibility that I might be half a point holding back a little bit, but maybe I think yeah. we're on the same mindset anyways, and the same celebration yeah, of what we're enjoying about the story anyways. Yeah, for sure. There's a lesson in that for you, of course, which is to do your reading earlier, but <laughs> I won't go down that channel. Instead, let me read this for you. Sure. Uh, this is from Thank chapter you. 20, Burial <laughs> at Sea. And this, this corresponds to the telltale heart thing I was saying. You're, you're getting, first of all, in the chapter, the mention of the pulse. And that's important, I think. You get the mention of the, the, the pulse of the engine vibrating through the boat, the sound of the waves beating incessantly on the gunwales, the crash of whitecaps hitting the boat when least expected. So you've already got a rhythm built into the beginning in this expository moment. And then later on on the page, this is the black lizard thinking about what's going on. She grew pale and gritted her teeth together, holding in check her instinct to flee. Even as she sat, though, it seemed that the heartbeat from the sofa was growing steadily louder. She could no longer hear the sound of the waves or the engine. All she could hear was the heartbeat from under her seat, the unknown pulsation echoing eerily, amplified as a drum to her ears. She could not stand it 
But she would never run away, never. Even if that man was hiding inside the sofa, he was just a rat caught in a bag, was he not? Nothing to be scared of. Nothing to be frightened of at all. And it's at that point that she engages Akechi, or who she thinks is Akechi, in the yes. sofa, though he's really hiding in the closet, uh, in, in that kind of final conversation before dumping the sofa overboard. But you sense that... You sense that Poe instinct there, don't you? Yes. Yeah, very much. Um, not not that Dupin dealt with it very much. The du- the Dupin stories didn't really have that flair at all. But the later Poe certainly did. You know, the Telltale Heart, the Black Ooh. Cat. The, there was that one Dupin know. story, though. I think it was the third one, not the Rue Morgue, the third story about the letter, I believe, like with this magistrate or something. The purloined like, letter, yeah. There the was the purloined that, letter. Yeah. There was yeah. there was a bit of feel of the purloined uh, letter, Good I think, point. in the yeah. Black Lizard. There was. And, you know, then again, let's encourage our listeners to go check those episodes out, because uh, a couple of years back, we did have a look at the Poe stories, didn't we? We did. Yeah. Okay, uh, let's finish up then, Josh, our chat here on the Black Lizard by looking at the secondary characters. Yeah, so we have uh, we have Mr. Awasi, the, the jeweler, his daughter, Sinai, a uh, big plot point in the story. And then we have, mm-hmm. I, I mean, he kind of falls in under the perpetrators. We have Amamiya Junichi, or Jun-chan, as he's known. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was more, he was he was an accomplice, really. Uh, and he was devoted to the Black Lizard, I think, for lustful and for power reasons. I think he was attracted to the power that she had. And, and in the, the first couple of chapters, too. Obviously, yeah. I mean, that's a big yeah. part of it. Yeah, lustful reasons, as as I indicated. Oh, I'm and sorry. And the thing is, he's and he seems as a violent, lustful man, anyways, because when he shows up, he's like, "I just killed my lover, my ex lover, mm-hmm. and her boyfriend. Can you help me clean <laughs> it right. up?" Essentially, that's exactly what he says. Yeah. <laughs> so there's that, and I was kind of like, "Oh, there's this guy's going to be kind of part of the game too," and I kind of wanted more of him, even though, yeah, he was the he was playing the game, he was the drunk, you know in the Owasi household, he was this person in, in that sequence. It, it, to me, though, I kind of wanted a little bit more of him, but I, I think he was a good accomplice mm-hmm. for, um, yes. the, yeah. for the Black Lizard. Yeah. I agree with you. He was a first half of the story character. He did totally disappear, uh, absolutely totally disappear after his role was sort of executed. But I think, as I said earlier, he was important for the the situating of her as a criminal boss. You know, like, yes. he's the one that Rambo uses to show how she establishes and exerts her control and her authority. And once his role in the narrative was kind of plain, he just became, he just became background, didn't he? Yeah. Like the other characters, like, it's like Owasi, yeah. for example, yeah. like, He's that character that's meant to make the to, to kind of reinforce Akechi, the detective character's brilliance, right? Because even though all the stuff that Akechi does, Awasi is still, you know, not impressed mm-hmm. or he's sarcastic or or whatnot, right? But this is a man who has yeah. very vast wealth and control. So he's someone I think who stands above society in that way. So he's not very he's not expectant of society to to do things right when he when he has the influence to do it to have it done himself. So someone yeah. like Akeshi is probably like the uh, the opposite of of him, but he's still no matter what he's being set up as the doubting client figure, and he's meant to be fooled. He's meant to have the wool pulled under That's his right. eyes. Yeah. He's meant mm-hmm. to be you know sideswept by the brilliance of the, of Akechi and everything that he does. Yeah, yeah. nicely said. So I agree with that. Yeah, it's a purely functional part of the narrative. Same with Sine, one hundred percent. Same with Sakuryama Yoko. She gets a brief intro in one chapter, and then she pops up in the end. Uh, 
I get in terms of the writing and the narrative, how that works. It still feels ham-fisted to me, but that's myself. Uh, and let's just talk about in terms of like, even though it's the same character, I do like the presentation of, uh, of a progressive society Japanese woman that Madame Madurakawa uh, re represents in the, in the narrative. Because even though the Black mm -hmm. Lizard and her are the same person, I, I enjoyed the persona of Madame Madurakawa. Yep. Yeah, yeah, she's part different. Of me, I, I, yeah, yeah. Part of me wanted her to be kind of like you know, like a Selena Kyle type. Like the the Black Lizard was oh, like yeah. her yeah. alias, and okay, yeah. And Madura Kawa and Madura Kawa is like her real person, and she's like just this rich thief, of, this society maven or something, maybe like a widower, or or just a kept or kept woman by a dominant husband, and she's out doing all this stuff, you know, and he's out, you know. That would be interesting. Yeah, that would, yeah, that would be I, interesting. There, and maybe, maybe she is. A, who knows? Yeah, who knows? Who knows who she really was? It's hard to say. But we don't get more than that in the denouement, so. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So overall, I think the characters worked for the narrative. They weren't anything overly impressive, but they still worked. So I, I, I passed them. I, I gave three out of ten. I had no reason yeah. to give it, like, just a simple passing of two and a half. Like, they all worked, mm -hmm. you know, in that functional aspect for me. So I, I gave no qualms giving it three out of five. No, and that's exactly what I gave too. Um, e even right down to the various hoodlums that we get mentioned, you know, like the stoker of yeah. the ship and all of that. Like so much of what happens to the supporting cast in this book, it's shared through like aha moments or he took your clothes or he took your your fake beard or he wanted to dress up like you. Or, like A fake beard is definitely the Q branch element feature to have in this story, man. Yeah, 100%. It, it works to get you out of everything. Yeah, it's the Mission Impossible mask, right? It's it's, it's, it's that's right. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's what it is exactly. Chekhov's fake beard. Yeah. What about um, Mrs. Owasi? What is your what was your oh, impression of her in, in that? My in impression of her is exactly what you said earlier. She's there, but she's an extension of her husband's angst, and seems only permitted to emote when, um, like. Like she, she seemed more bothered about the couch than she did about her daughter. <laughs> but like what about it was the really weird. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I know, right? It's very strange. Um, Iwasi, I guess, is in terms of secondary characters after Junchan and Sanai. I guess he is like he's maybe he's even the most important secondary character. But he's proud to a fault, right? Like he's dedicated, but. As characters go, he's very flat. There's not a lot written about him. There's more written about Jun Chan. There's more dimension with the backstory of the, the murder and his ex-lover and the jealousy and all of that. Like He's more interesting to the narrative than Iwase is. He's just a figurehead who has something, well, two somethings, the diamond and the girl, that the Black Lizard wants. But, you know... I do wonder, though, like, he seems to be mad at Akeshi an awful lot, but he keeps him on retainer. Like, what's the deal with that? I think like, I should never have hired you to do this, but please come back tomorrow and look after my family. But like, he does you know say I mean? this, like, in the rooms of a, of a typical Japanese household, in front of servants. Mm. He does say these mm -hmm. things aloud. So I think it's just mm -hmm. him maintaining his patriarchy, so to speak, or his control of the household. Yeah, good observation. Yeah. He and needs he to be seen to as, yeah, yeah. And to remind him that he's above Akechi, too, right? So... Akechi is just like this brilliant upstart that's a tool that he uses to get what he wants done. Whereas, 
we the audience know better, right? But he but mm-hmm. he doesn't because he can't possibly fathom that you know these things are possible because that's just the way that he sees things, and that's how all those types of characters see things. Yeah, yeah. Well, Josh, um, unless you have something else to add, the scores are in for Edogawa Rampo's The Black Lizard. You're at a 15.5 out of 25, and I'm at a 16.5 out of 25. So not too far away at all on this one. And I think I think those are pretty representative, actually. Although we say, you know, sometimes with translated texts, our, our PIPES acronym, our scoring system doesn't always work. I feel like that's that's okay for, for my enjoyment of this story. I think 16.5 right. out of 25 is pretty much what I felt, you know? I definitely concur. Like, this was a fun story. It wasn't a great story. Um, there are aspects of it that I think were either too rushed or not developed. Uh, but at the same time, I still enjoyed what I got. And, you know, it, it's a popcorn read, you know, and I'm, I'm absolutely fine with that. Yeah, and we're talking 60, 65% here, these scores, if they're going to be made into percentages. So popcorn read it is. And I would like to see more of this character, or maybe maybe I'd like to read more about him before I read another one. Does that make sense to you? I see what you mean. Just get a background like, on him. Yeah, like you gave some good fast facts there about the author, but maybe if we were to explore more about the character and some of these earlier texts in more detail, I would be compelled or I'd feel a bit more motivated to to, you know, bust on reading them, huh? Yeah, absolutely. I'm just wondering how readily available some of these books are, because there is this one, The Black Lizard. It doesn't even show in the Penguin edition when it was originally published either, which is very strange to me. But Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's true. We had a little bit of uh, a tiff about that one, didn't we? (laughs) Because I I was insistent that it was there, but no, I had actually gone out and done the research and I found it somewhere else. Yes, but it was published. uh, this, This particular Penguin edition, easily available, um, interesting part of the crime and espionage modern classics line. And yeah, yeah if you want something different, pick it up. It'll definitely give you sure. something different. All right, Josh. Well, we leave the shores of Japan and its CD underworld, and we travel next here on Lighting the Pipes to Sweden. Specifically, we're going to have a look at Dr. Glass, a book by Hjalmar Soderberg. Another translation, the text itself from 1905. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, like, wondering if the name, because I'm just thinking of, like, because I'm kind of getting a little bit into Swedish cinema a bit, which is kind of funny, because this is an off-play of my Hollywood stuff, like, um, and I'm wondering if maybe there were some adaptations that that guy did, it's possible, because Swedish cinema was was, was pretty big, and that was actually its its own big thing, and it still is, I mean, if you think about it, because I think after World War II, that's when you get, like, Ingmar Bergman doing all of his movies, like The Seventh Seal. Yeah, yeah. And stuff cool. that he dealt in. And I'm really, I want to, I've seen The Seventh Seal, but I want to get into Bergman because I heard he has some really interesting psychological stories in, in his films, right? Okay. Well, maybe yeah. we can fit some of, some of that diversion into our Dr. Glass episode when we next meet here on Lighting the Pipes. Swedish talk literature. About, I'm excited. Yeah. To talk about, yeah, to talk about that. Should, should be good fun. It's a psychological thriller. So I'm, I'm guessing what we didn't get here with Akechi and his internal monologue, we're going to have here. We're going to have that here in droves. Okay, well, uh, thanks everybody for listening. As always, please yes. check us out on the socials, pipes underscored pod, at pipes underscore pod at, we would love on Instagram. 
We would love your feedback. Uh, equally, if you want to email us, you can find us at lightingpipes at gmail.com. Drop us a line there. And if, if you like what we do here, give us a review. A five-star review always helps others like yourself find the show and share good reading and good conversation. All right, everybody. Take care. And you too, Josh. Take care, pal. Thanks for the fun. It's been a blast. Take care, guys. Thank you for listening.